Welcome back to the RE Exam Podcast, the Real Estate Exam Podcast. This is the second sample lesson for the Washington Real Estate Salesperson Exam Audio Lessons. In this lesson, we're going to be covering real property and what are the types of rights that you get with real property. If you find this sample lesson valuable, please consider purchasing the full series of audio lessons at reexampodcast.com. Just look for Washington and it'll take you to where you can purchase the full series of audio lessons. Let's get on to today's lesson. Welcome to this lesson entitled Real Property. In this lesson, we will be talking about what exactly real property is, different things that you need to know about real property. There's all sorts of different concepts that you need to be familiar with when we're talking about real property, because as you can imagine, real property has quite a bit to do with real estate. You need to be able to understand what rights are, what the different kinds of rights that people can have are and so on and so forth. So let's go ahead and get started. At the end of this lesson, you will have the chance to quiz yourself, just find out whether you have completely understood the content of today's lesson as well. So look for that at the end of this lesson. We're talking about real property. You have to make the distinction between real property and personal property. Real property, is land and anything that is affixed to the land or appurtenant to the land, which is, that means that it comes along with the land. It's something that is not movable. You can't pick up your actual land and move it to someplace else. It's always there. It's permanently fixed. That is real property. When we're talking about personal property, those are things that you can move around from large things like your pickup truck all the way down to small things like your clothing, your personal belongings. Those are personal property. So that's the difference between real property and personal property. It's really important when we're talking about real estate transactions to make sure that you understand what is real property and what is personal property, because there's different rules and rights that govern the different things about the real property or the personal property. And of course, when we talk about real property, most of the time you're just thinking, oh, it's the land, the land that the house or the building is going to be built on. But really, it's more than that. You have to think about it as the surface of the land, sure, but also the airspace above the land, and the subsurface, which is what is below the ground. You can picture it as it's kind of a, an inverted cone where it starts at the center of the earth and you got you have the slice below the earth that goes from the surface down to the center of the earth and you've got the airspace going up above that. You can't forget to talk about those things when you're talking about your real property. And when somebody owns a piece of real property, they get what are called the appurtenant rights. And those are the rights that go along with that particular piece of property. These can include, this can include 
a great many different things. And we refer to all of these things collectively as the bundle of rights. That's the whole stack of things that come with land ownership. These are the things that you get automatically unless it's spelled out differently in their contract. So these include any or all of the following, the air rights, the water rights, the solid mineral rights, the oil and gas rights. These are some of the subsurface rights, things that you might find under the ground and different support rights. And usually when the land is transferred from one person to another, so the ownership of the land passes from one person to another, these appurtenant rights also transfer, but not necessarily. You could actually sell your land off and retain and negotiate to retain one or more rights, but that's another discussion. Take it, for example, if you are you buy up a piece of land and you sell it to someone else, but you keep the mineral rights. Say you want to have a mining operation, you may not own the land, but you own the mineral rights to it. So anything that people find on it, you get a cut of the profits from that. So let's talk about each of these individual kinds of rights that can be bundled in with land ownership. The first is air rights. And air rights, so in theory, it's all the way up into space, but that's not really true. In this case, the federal government uh, regulates kind of the upper altitude, so the airspace, they allow planes to pass through, that sort of thing. But a landowner does have rights to the airspace that's directly over the land. And so if somebody encroaches the airspace that is just directly over their property, then yes, they can sue somebody for damages if it causes a problem. But technically, the upper altitudes are regulated by the federal government. So that's just one of the rights that comes with land ownership. Another one is the water rights. And water is a more complicated thing because it's found both on the surface of the earth, but then also beneath the ground. So it can be something that is in a river or a stream that's kind of normal, or it can be something that water that only is on the land when it rains. There are two subcategories of water rights that you need to know about. These are the riparian rights and the littoral rights. So riparian rights are rights to the water that flows through or next to a person's property. One way to remember what riparian rights are is it starts with the letter R, as that's the same letter that starts the word river. And so it's a flowing body of water that goes through the property or that goes next to the property. And that means that if you are a landowner and you have such a body of water on your property, you are reasonably allowed to use the stream of water in its natural flow. You can use it for drinking, you can wash things in it, you can use it to water your garden. But one thing that you can't do is to diminish the flow of it. For example, so if it is a long stream, there's going to be a part of it on your property and then a part of it on the next person over's property and so on and so forth. So you can't do something on your property that restricts the flow of water. Let's say you, you can't build a dam on your property that makes it so that the water doesn't flow downstream to your neighbor because that is infringing on that person's riparian water rights. So you can use it for yourself and all of your sort of domestic uses but you can't do anything that infringes on other people's riparian rights. Another distinction you need to make here is, is 
whether the owner un- owns the land underneath the stream, and that depends on whether the water is navigable or not. And it, navigable means that it's big enough that you can put a commercial boat on it. So if the stream is the boundary of the property and it's not navigable, then the owner owns the land under the water to the midpoint of the stream. But if it is navigable, the government owns the land under the water and the re- and the landowner only owns the land that's above the high water mark of the stream bed. The reason that's the case is that the general public is allowed to use navigable bodies of water. So it's really controlled by the government. So you can't infringe on someone's right in order to use a body of water. Even if it flows, <clears throat> even if it flows through your property, you need to be able to, other people need to be able to use it for those purposes. So that's riparian rights. Then we have what are called littoral rights. And a nice way to remember this is that littoral starts with L and so does lake. And this is not a flowing body of water, but a confined body of water, such as a lake or an ocean, one that is not free-flowing. And kind of like the riparian rights, you are allowed to use the lake for fishing or other recreational purposes, such as swimming or boating. If it's not a navigable lake, then each owner that has littoral rights owns the portion of the lake that is next to the property. If it is a navigable lake, that means that the owner owns the land to the the mean high water mark. And this is also true if it's the ocean. If it's the it's an oceanfront property, that's also the case. And so here's something that you need to know that is specific to Washington, and that is called the appropriative rights. And so this is not something that's in every state, but most states have riparian and littoral rights, but they may not have appropriative rights. So pay close attention to this. So appropriative rights are rights that are granted by the government based on a special permit system. So what happens is that someone who wants to use water from a specific source then applies to the government for a permit. And if the government grants that permit, that person is then allowed to use that water for that purpose. And this water ownership is not tied to specific land ownership like riparian and littoral rights. That's kind of the usual way that water rights are granted, but this is completely different. It's not based on that at all. And so the person can then go and use the water uh, for as long as they have the permit. If If it's found that they're actually not taking advantage of the water that they have a permit for, then their permit goes away and they'd have to reapply for that. This is used in a lot of Western states where water is not as plentiful And so it has to be carefully planned how the water is going to be used so that it's not squandered. And so that it, and that various places that are not near bodies of water or don't have easy access to these bodies of water can have access to it. And so that's something that is definitely a little different than some other states where this is not such a big problem. So those are water rights. You've got the riparian, littoral, and appropriative. Next, we have what are called solid mineral rights. And those are all of the solid minerals that are under the ground, that are beneath the property. And these are rights that can be sold to someone else. If, for example, there's a company that is much better equipped in order to get these minerals out of the ground, then you might sell them the mineral rights so that you can make a profit off of what is below the earth. 
some good some good examples are uh, oil and gas rights. If there is crude oil or natural gas that lie beneath the surface of the earth, that's a little bit different because they it's, it's trapped inside the earth. But once there an oil or gas reserve in the earth has been tapped, it begins to flow toward the point where the reservoir has been pierced by the well. So it can be it's easily to manipulate where it actually goes to. And so the government has instituted what's called the rule of capture that says that the landowner owns all the oil and gas that are produced by wells on that person's property. So it's not exactly where precisely the it is under the earth, but whoever can capture that natural gas or oil using a well that is affixed to that person's property, then they captured it, they get to keep it and sell it, that sort of thing. And so in addition to the air, the water, the mineral rights, we also have a few other appurtenant rights. And one of these is called a support right. And that means that they have their they have the right to the natural support that is provided by the land beneath uh, his or her property. That mean, um, So for example, if someone else wants to go in and excavate next to the property and it would cause problems with how well the land supports the structures that are already there, then that can be stopped because they you have the right for the land to support your property in such a way that it's not going to fall over and cause injury, cause loss of property, and so on and so forth. So we've talked about how real property is land, but it's also the rights. And then there's a third element that you should know as well, and that are that is also attachments. And those are things that are just affixed to the land. They come with the land. And there are two different kinds. We have natural attachments, things that are naturally occurring. And then we have man-made attachments, those that were built later by human hands. So natural attachments are things that are attached to the earth by roots, such as trees and bushes and shrubs and all other kinds of plants. They grow spontaneously. They can whether or not they're cultivated by people. And these natural attachments, so that the plants, the uh, flora that are attached to your property are part of your real property. But in some cases you have to kind of split hairs and say, well, the trees themselves are part of the real property, but the actual fruit or anything that comes from the trees are considered personal property. Those are removable. You can't remove easily remove the entire apple tree or the orange tree. But if you pick the oranges from the orange tree, yes, those can be removed and can be considered personal property, It depending on the circumstances. And there's a special rule in Washington known as the doctrine of emblemments. And emblemments is just another word for crops. That means that if a tenant farmer comes and plants crops and the tenancy for that particular pot of land is for an indefinite period of time and the tenancy is terminated through no fault of the tenant before the crops are ready to be harvested, the tenant has the right to re-enter the land and harvest the crops even if the tenancy has ended. Because they, they'd already put the crops in, that was their property, and they just have to wait for the crops to be fully ready to harvest. So those are natural attachments. That's pretty self-explanatory. They occur in nature. But then we also have man-made attachments, and these are known as fixtures. And fixtures are things that are affixed to the land, and they are meant to be permanent. They are not something that you 
will generally take away when you leave the property. If you sell the property or give it to somebody else, it's not something you're going to take with you. A perfect example of this is a fence. You affix it to the land. It's supposed to be sort of a divider, a border, if you will. And you're not typically going to take your fence with you when you move. It would be very difficult. It's supposed to be a permanent structure. And sometimes some things can, can be affixed to the land, but that could be moved. And so there's kind of a fine line between personal property and, and fixtures. And often when, you ha when you're selling a house, you'll write down in the bill of sale what is considered a fixture and what is considered personal property, what's going to be taken to the new property and what is going to be left. And so, if, but if, if this hasn't been spelled out, then you need to consider the following things. The method of attachment, how has the fixture been attached to the property? The adaptation of the item, how has it been adapted to become part of the real property? The intention of the person who created it and the relationship of the parties. This is between a buyer and a seller or a landlord and a tenant, so on and so forth. So if you answer these questions, that can help you decide whether something is a fixture or whether it's considered real property. Finally, let's talk a little bit about how you describe real property. And the way that you describe real property is known, are known as methods of legal description. You can't simply, for legal purposes, say, well, I'm going to just give an address or say, oh, it's the house next to the post office. Those don't fly in a official legal document. You have to have another method that is more specific and more permanent than that. So there are a few different methods that people use. The first is known as a meets and bounds method, and that describes a, a plot of land by using boundaries and monuments. A monument is either a natural object or a man-made marker that serves as sort of the stopping point of your boundary. You kind of create a shape using the different monuments. So you go here, and then you draw a line to here, and then you draw a line to here, to the tree, and then you draw a line to this marker in the middle of town. And and it's this far from here to here, and you, you create sort of a, a bounded area using the monuments and the distances and the directions. And this will tell you how big the plot of land is and how it is shaped. You have a point of beginning where you start, and you want to trace around the boundaries of the land and get back to the point of beginning so that you have a closed shape. That is known as the meets and bounds system. You also have what is called the government survey system. The government survey system is sort of a grid that is placed upon the land. You've got imaginary lines that run like latitude lines. You've got imaginary lines that run like longitude lines. And this creates a grid system. And then you can say where in the grid a particular piece of property is. You measure everything from what's called the principal meridian. And that's the north-south line that you is kind of the center of your grid. And then you have the baseline, which is the center of your east and west measurements. And so in Washington, there's an established uh, meridian for that is where everything else is based upon. And so these you do vertical lines and horizontal lines, you get these squares. And these squares are known as townships. These townships, 
These townships are six miles by six miles, which means that it is a 36-mile section. It's a square. And within this square, it's broken up into smaller squares called sections. And these are these sections are each one square mile. So you could, you've got your big grid, and then you've got your even smaller grids to pinpoint locations. So each township is 36 square miles, and each township has 36 sections of one square mile apiece that break it down even further. So this is the government survey system so that it uses a grid. And then finally, we have what's called the lot and block system. The lot and block system, it basically you draw out a map of a particular block, a particular neighborhood, a subdivision. It shows the streets, it shows all of the different plots of land, and each of these is then given a number. Say this is block four, and on block four there's 25 different plots of land. They're numbered one through 25, and so then you can say you refer to block four, it's house 14. And that shows precisely the location, the size of the property. So that's good, a good enough legal description before the law. So let's go ahead and review what we learned today. Quiz yourself and see if you can, un if, see if you can answer these questions. My first question is, what is the difference between real property and personal property? The answer is that real property is something that is permanent, it is fixed, like land, it can't be moved, and personal property can be. It's things like a car, your clothing, your computer, whatever that can be moved. My next question is, what are some of the pertinent rights that are given to property owners? What are some things that come bundled with land ownership? So we have air rights, water rights, mineral, oil and gas rights, and support rights. My next question is, what does it mean to have air rights, and how far do air rights extend? Air rights just mean you have the right to use the air directly over your property. It doesn't extend all the way up into space, but it does prevent people from encumbering the air directly over your property. My next question is, what is the difference between littoral rights and riparian rights when we're talking about water rights? There are two different things here. So riparian rights are those for rivers or other flowing bodies of water. Littoral rights are those for non-moving bodies of water and determine how much of the water you actually own. My next question is, what are appropriative rights when we're talking about water rights? How are those different? So these, these are rights that are given by a special permit. You have to apply for them and get the permit, and then you have to use them once you have them or you can lose them. My next question is, what are solid mineral rights and how do those work? So solid mineral rights are those for minerals that you find under the ground 
oil and gas are a little bit different. So where they, the doctrine is the rule of capture. If you can capture it with a well on your property, you get to keep it. But these are bundled under subsurface rights. So things that are under the surface of the ground for property that you own. My next question is, what is an example of a natural attachment? These are things that are attached to the land, but what's a natural attachment? A natural attachment is one that comes from nature, such as a tree. It is attached to the ground through roots, so in a natural fashion. In that same vein, what is a man-made attachment, or otherwise known as a fixture? What is that? So a fixture, something man-made is a fixture. For example, a fence. That's something that is not meant to be moved when the property changes hands. That is a good example of a fixture. Next question is, what are some questions you can ask if you want to determine whether something is personal property or should be considered a fixture? Some things you can ask are, what was the method of attachment? How was the item adapted? What was the intention of the person who affixed it? And what are the relationship between the two parties in question? My next question is, what are some methods of legal description? There are three different ones that we talked about. What are those three methods of legal description? The first is the meets and bounds method. Then we have the government survey method and the lot and block method. How does the meets and bounds system describe property? So that does so by having a point of beginning, having various monuments and directions, measurements to create a bounded plot of land. Then how does the government survey method work? The government survey method, on the other hand, uses a grid system where there are vertical lines and horizontal lines. This creates six by six mile plots known as townships, which are broken up into sections. And this is used to describe property. Then finally, what is the lot and block method? How does that work? So in the lot and block method, you have a map of a particular subdivision. The subdivision is numbered, and then so are all individual plots of land, so that you can easily refer to which block and which lot you are talking about. And that is all for our lesson for today. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks for listening to Lesson 2 of the Washington Real Estate Salesperson Exam Audio Lessons. The full series of audio lessons is a total of 8 hours and 37 minutes in total length and is 20 individual lessons. If you found this valuable, consider purchasing the full series of audio lessons at the website reexampodcast.com.